Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. All right, so this week we are beginning with verse 9 of chapter 9. And as I said previously, this is Jesus coming down off of the mountain. Um, he's just giving, given them the sort of hard teaching about uh, his, his resurrection, and, and we've seen this sort of manifestation of the glorification that is to come. Uh, but now we are faced with... Uh, an even stranger moment um, where Jesus gives them some more instruction about revealing who he is, but not doing this until um, after he has risen the third time, or on the third day, rather, not the third time, excuse me, uh, but after he has risen on the third day. And so we begin there in verse uh, 9 of chapter 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, so nothing about the transfiguration, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does first come to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So, we're faced once again with the disciples doing what the disciples do best, where they have all these questions and they ask none of them. Um, now, certainly, they, they might have been curious about Elijah. Of course, we discussed last week, how in the world do they even know who Elijah is? Um, but here, instead of asking the burning question, which is about this rising from the dead, no, they ask about Elijah. Now, and we have to remember the context and the culture that we're talking about here. So the Greeks honored the pantheon of heroes. Now, this isn't the, the pantheon of uh, gods necessarily. This is another sort of set of folks um, who were promoted to heaven without dying because of their achievements. And so the term that they use to describe this is uh, apotheosis and the making of mortals into gods. So yes, we're still in that that pantheon vein, but we're not in that vein so much that we are um, discussing, say, Zeus and Athena and, and those types are in uh, the Roman mythology, albeit mostly the same gods, um, Jupiter and so forth. Um, the Apocalypse of Peter, another of these pseudepigraphal books, um, conceives of Jesus as some kind of divine man who was whisked into heavenly glory from the summit of the Mount of the Transfiguration. So they see sort of this almost adoptionism, if you will, so that, that idea that he was glorified and made divine at the Mount of the Transfiguration. But we see with Mark's Jesus, uh, totally opposite of this, that he fuses the upward mobility of the divine man with Jesus' own humanity. So he doesn't deny the humanity, and in fact, as we've talked about, Mark's gospel is most concerned with Jesus the human operating in that divine way, but he's not necessarily uh, dealing with the divine Christ as we might understand it. Um, 
perhaps as we should understand it, uh, but not as we often do. So, yes, the transfiguration does anticipate the glorious existence the Son of Man will enter after he is raised from the dead. And yes, it is also the sort of prolepsis, this, this uh, foretelling of the resurrection and a present momentary representation of a glorious future event. But the glorious uh, resurrection and the glorious restoration of all these things that are heralded by Elijah, as the scribes understand it, uh, must not be the first or the only thing in the disciples' thinking. So Mark uses this dialogue that we've just read here uh, to steer readers and hearers of this gospel away from the concept of messianic triumphalism implied in G uh, Peter's declaration of 829, chapter 8, verse 29. And what am I talking about there? This idea of this popular idea of a military sort of political uh, messiah. Jesus does not want this. And so he is beginning to teach and train his disciples in such a way that they will not understand him like this. Uh, because of Peter's question, the way that Peter recognizes Jesus, uh, there is some concern, naturally. I mean, get thee behind me, Satan, as Jesus says to him uh, when he sort of uh, rebukes Jesus for even talking about suffering. So Peter, as spokesman for the disciples, is, is, is showing this awareness and or lack of awareness, really, of who Jesus is, but this super-awareness, this hyper-awareness of the current cultural moment. Jesus is trying to push them beyond that, and so he uses this uh, discussion to do that. In verses 11 to 13, as we see there, three separate figures are introduced or alluded to. Of course, Elijah there, the Son of Man, and the Suffering Servant. Uh, the suffering servant, of course, comes from Isaiah. And they all attest to this same truth, that suffering must precede glory. Uh, now, this is, of course, launching into that, that the, the Messiah must suffer at the hands of uh, the people. Now, Mark structures this passage generally parallel to the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples following uh, Peter's confession in 829, so you can sort of map these two together. Um, after both Peter's confession and the transfiguration, Jesus swears the disciples to silence. He does not want them going out and talking about who he is because they do not understand it well enough to have anything of value to say about it. Um, just go back and think, at the transfiguration, Peter's ready to set up a tent for all three of them. And as we talked about, this is Mark giving him a pass because Peter has nothing valuable to actually offer to the thing that he is witnessing. But of course, the disciples are, are resistant to both events. Uh, after Jesus' passion predict, prediction in chapter 8, verse 31, we saw, see Peter trying to dissuade him, rebuking him, as it is translated. And after this resurrection uh, prediction, they keep the matter to themselves, discussing among themselves instead what the rising of the dead might mean. Um, but they are, they are frustrated uh, by both of these events. So Jesus uses this frustration uh, 
to teach them the way that he as the Son of Man must go, but also the way that they must follow. So this evening as we continue our study, one of the things that we're going to uh, talk about is beginning in verse 30 through verse 50, there's a section I call Mere Discipleship. Um, if any of you have read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, you can feel the influence uh, already. Um, and so in that discussion of mere discipleship, we have this, this whole thing of consider the cost, counting the cost. What does it mean to be a disciple and to do so effectively? Jesus is leading into that by way of himself. All right, so now in verse 9, Jesus, on the way down the mountain, gives the three disciples orders to keep their experience of the transfiguration secret until after the resurrection of the Son of Man. Uh, this transfiguration was a revelation of the glory of the Son of Man, but to proclaim this before the cross would have been too much in keeping with current popular ideas of messiahship. First, you've got to have the suffering and the death. Only then can you have the glorification. After the resurrection, so remember we talked about the resurrection as itself a manifestation of the glory of the Son of Man, Divulging the transfiguration experience, of course, would be appropriate. Why? Because then you're viewing it in the correct light. So because we sit on the other side of the cross, we have an entirely different perspective on the transfiguration than the disciples would have had, and it shows in our understanding. Until the time after the cross, though, Jesus enjoins the disciples to keep what they had seen a secret. Now, verse 10 tells us that they obey this injunction. Uh, they're puzzled by his statement about the resurrection of the Son of Man. Now, as Jews, and particularly as, as Jews most readily associated with the doctrines of the Pharisees, they have a familiar understanding of the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, but the Pharisees do. And so, Jesus, as we've talked about, would have been, even in the seemingly controversial teachings, would have been more closely aligned with the tradition of the Pharisees than that of the Sadducees, and so were the disciples. So, they don't have so much a problem with that, but what they do have a lot of question about is this special resurrection of the Son of Man, uh, because this implies that suffering, right? So we get to verse 11, and we see they don't feel free to ask Jesus to explain what he means by rising from the dead. So they ask him about Elijah. Uh, now they've seen, at this point, they have seen Elijah at the transfiguration, and no doubt it reminds him of, like we discussed last week, what the law and what uh, the rabbis had to say about Elijah coming at the end of the age to come before the Messiah and to restore all things. And we read this from Malachi. Now, restoring all things involves, among other things, leading people to repentance. So if Elijah comes first and does his preparatory work, how is it that when the Son of Man comes, he finds people so unprepared for him that they completely reject and indeed kill him? This is the part that doesn't quite make sense. So if... If this represents a reconstruction of their thinking, and I'm not sure if it does, but if this represents a reconstruction of their thinking, then yet again, we have a problem with the notion of a suffering Messiah. 
And then in verse 12, Jesus says something that actually probably confuses many of us because he says that the teachers of the law are right about Elijah. He does come first and he does restore all things. But what that involves does not preclude the suffering of the Son of Man. Look there again at verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And then he qualifies this in verse 13. Now, before we leave verse 12, we have this phrase in the ESV translation, is it written? Others sort of put it back in what we're used to in biblical discourse. It is written. This is probably a reference to the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. But in 13, when he qualifies this statement, he actually goes beyond that of the teachers of the law. He says, not only must Elijah come, but he's already been here. And he's been here in the person of John the Baptist. Now, he doesn't call John the Baptist's name. Uh, but he clearly makes this connection. They have done to him everything they wished, or as our translation says, they did to him whatever they pleased. This is a reference to his treatment by Herod, John the Baptist's imprisonment, John the Baptist's death. And just as it is written about him, refers to what the Old Testament says about Elijah in his relationship with Ahab and Jezebel. So go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 2. Herod and Herodias are foreshadowed in Ahab and Jezebel. Now, there is no prediction of suffering associated with Elijah's eschatological ministry. But the main thrust of Jesus' reply in verses 12 to 13 makes clear to the disciples that this eschatological ministry, this end times ministry of Elijah, in no way does away with the necessity for the Son of Man to suffer and die. So Elijah can still come back in the person of John the Baptist. Now, let me, let me pause on that phrasing. Jesus is not suggesting, nor am I suggesting, that, that uh, John the Baptist is Elijah incarnate, that he's back. You know, we're not getting into any of that business. What we are saying is the role that, that Elijah was uh, paving the way for is the role that John the Baptist assumed, and by assuming that role, he then paved the way for the Messiah. So it's this sort of three-step process. But what was foreshadowed about John the Baptist by the life and ministry of Elijah is what gives Jesus the context to say that Elijah has come, and by talking of Elijah, he's really speaking of John the Baptist. And so we see that even in uh, John the Baptist slash uh, uh, symbolic Elijah, if you will, even in that ministry, there was suffering, even in the role that they were playing. And so uh, naturally, it's not hard to suggest that the Messiah is going to have to do this too. But of course, that's not a popular idea of the Messiah. And now we go to verse 19 to 24, where Jesus is going to heal a boy with an unclean spirit. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Surprise. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
And he, Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So we see straight away... I didn't finish that. Let's go back to verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. All right. Now let's get into ripping this apart a little bit. Uh, Verse 14, right from the outset, Mark immediately has a more detailed and complete account of this story than either Matthew or Luke. However, this is the last exorcism story in Mark's gospel. So we've seen all of these. This is it. This is the final one. And it occurs when Jesus, Peter, James, and John rejoin the other disciples after having been on the Mount of the Transfiguration. So the disciples are down here engaging in a debate with the scribes while a large crowd looks on. And Jesus has just been up here on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and these three disciples. Now, we talked about that where the Transfiguration took place is a matter of some debate. But if the transfiguration took place on Mount Hermon, then the presence of the teachers of the law so far north in Palestine would show their intense concern in monitoring Jesus because that's a long way from Jerusalem. So in verse 15, uh, we have to ask, why were the people so amazed uh, when they see Jesus? Uh, Was this because there was an afterglow of the transfiguration on his face? Uh, No, obviously not for many reasons, but mainly because he commands that the disciples are to keep it a secret. Well, they can't very well keep it a secret if he's glowing with radiance after having been up here with Elijah and Moses and the very presence of God, right? But it may have been how opportune the moment was when he appeared, or... It could be that by this point, Jesus' uh, persona, his ministry, the effect of Jesus' presence had gained a bit of wonder because he's able to do these things that had they had not previously seen. But in verses 16 to 18, we start getting at the heart of this. So Jesus asks the other disciples that had, that had stayed down, what are you arguing about with them? But the disciples don't answer him. Rather, it's this guy in the crowd. 
Now, we get a very, very descriptive and graphic explanation of what's wrong with the son. Uh, He's possessed by a spirit that gives him a loss of speech. But he also has seizures that are accompanied by foaming at the mouth, grinding of the teeth, and bodily rigidity. If we wanted to get scientific and try to diagnose this, we might say that this kid was um, suffering with epilepsy. It wouldn't maybe be out of the question that this is sort of what this looks like, because those types of uh, illnesses uh, would have created, or did have, actually, a mysterious nature in the minds of the people. So we have this, and in Jesus' absence, while he's up on the Mount of the Transfiguration, this guy brings his possessed son to the disciples for healing. Now, the disciples, no doubt, had expected to be able to handle this. I mean, by this point, they've been with Jesus. They've been doing these things. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to. This had been a part of their commission. Go back to chapter 3, verse 15. And they had done it. Go back to chapter 6, verse 13. But Jesus responds to them, and he doesn't respond very happily. Look at the response. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How, how long am I to bear with you? Now, faithless generation, or some, some uh, versions will say unbelieving generation, probably if you're looking at the NIV. We don't want to read too far into that. Uh, this cry of Jesus reveals utter, total, bitter disappointment. They failed because of their lack of faith. It's not that they don't believe in who he is or that they've attributed his power to the wrong source, a la the Pharisees. But as the ESV renders it and does so nicely, they failed because of their lack of faith, their faithlessness. Uh, one, One commentator says, It is not too bold to presume that during the absence of Jesus and his three intimates, a spirit of unbelief and laxity had overcome the disciples, perhaps partly as a result of conversations between them, leading to their impotence. Now, I want you to hold on to that for a minute and think back to, to uh, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. What happens while he's at, in the presence of God? A spirit of unbelief and laxity takes over the Israelites. Jesus has just been on the mountain in the very presence of God. And what happens while he's there? So Jesus says, How long shall I stay with you? How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you? Suggesting his longing to be with the Heavenly Father in the face of this faithlessness, this unbelief. And he has grown very tired of the disciples' spiritual obtuseness, uh, their inability to get a hold of this. But he teaches them. And remember what we said about teaching very early on. Teaching is very closely linked to Jesus' compassion. Jesus never got 
to the end of his patience. It was tested, it was tried, but he never gets to the end of it. And Mark seems particularly anxious to show him persisting in his instruction of them, as we're going to see uh, following this section. Verses 30 to 31, he does so. Chapter 14, verse 28. Chapter 16, verse 7. It's everywhere. So in verses 20 to 22 then, Mark describes the deadly conflict between Jesus and the demonic powers. Confronted by Jesus. Now, think about the other exorcism stories before we go. What happens? Not normally this. What normally happens is a greeting, a recognition of who Jesus is. This doesn't happen this time. In fact, we don't see the Spirit speak at all. What happens instead is the, deme the demon immediately throws the boy into a convulsion and makes him fall on the ground and foam at the mouth. Precisely what the father had described happens. Now, Mark is the only writer in revealing the story to us that tells us that Jesus asked how long this boy had been afflicted. Again, concern. So the boy's been sick since childhood, uh, and he's experienced numerous attacks. And he's been thrown into fire and into water. Now Mark uses the plural form of water here, hudata, uh, which in this context may mean pools or streams. He's thrown him into many. This has happened more than once. So the father very pathetically asks Jesus for help, not pathetically in the sense that it wasn't a sincere request. It's just he's, he is at the end of his rope. But he believed the boy would be healed by the disciples, and it hasn't happened. So, so what has transferred the faithlessness of the disciples has transferred now to the father. He is not sure if there is any healing, and he says, if you can do anything. And in verse 23... Jesus fixates immediately on this if clause, if you can. The question was not whether Jesus had the power to heal the boy, but whether the father had the faith to believe that Jesus could. He says everything is possible for him who believes. Reference may also be to the faithlessness of the disciples the failure of them because of their faithlessness. If that's the case, then this statement is not about belief as a condition necessary for receiving healing, but it is about belief as an active force in the accomplishment of healing. Now, I don't see those two statements as mutually exclusive. If belief is an active force in the accomplishment of healing, then it is also a necessary condition for receiving healing. Now, this would help explain Jesus' rebuke of his disciples in verse 19. However, in view of Mark's emphasis in his gospel of the importance of faith for healing, according to this commentator, the first interpretation is to be preferred. I say they're the same interpretation, they're just worded differently. All right. But the father recognizes that his faith, in verse 24, is far from perfect, that it is still mixed with unbelief. And so he says, I believe. Help, I memorized this from the King James Version years ago as a kid, so I want to say, I believe, help thou my unbelief. You help me. 
in this beautiful display of honesty, he asks Jesus first to help him with his faith, then to heal his son. Now, John Calvin. Now, once again, Calvin's very helpful with Mark, and particularly with, with Christ. So Calvin says of the Father, he declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. And don't we all? Those of us who have been born again certainly question at times, particularly during suffering, sickness, and death. Is God able? In this moment that we find ourselves in with this coronavirus and everything else like that, is God able? Can he do it? If you can do it. We are, in so many ways, the father of this child. So now the mention of this crowd, and back in verse 25, the mention of this crowd running to the scene seems strange in view of verse 14, which states that a crowd was already there. Right? No mention is made of the crowd going away, so we conclude that the crowd of verse 25 is in addition to the one already present. But Jesus wants to avoid these people, and he wants to avoid them as much as possible. Um, so he exercises the demon before the other people get there. He does not want to perform miracles for gaping sightseers. That is not the purpose of his ministry. Uh, So the demon was ordered to come out and ordered to come out for good. But the demon's exorcism is accompanied by cries and convulsions. The effect on the boy then is so severe that he seems to the crowd to be dead. He was not in fact dead, even though they declared that he, he was dead. But he responds to the touch of Jesus. He responds to the touch of the Master. So, another theologian, I find this very helpful as well, is remarked saying that the accumulation of the vocabulary of death and resurrection in verses 26 to 27, and the parallelism with the narrative of the raising of Jairus' daughter, suggests that Mark wishes to allude to a death and resurrection. I would qualify that and say a death and resuscitation. Uh, the dethroning of Satan is always a reversal of death and an affirmation of life, but we do not want to confuse resurrection with resuscitation. Now, there is a difference. But we still have this question of why were the nine disciples powerless to act on behalf of this boy? The disciples, verse 28, why could we not cast it out? And Mark gives the answer. In private, the disciples went to Jesus and asked him why they had failed. They the question expressed a very deep concern because they've already done it. As we talked about, this is nothing that should be very new to them, nothing that should be very hard for them. They've already, I mean, they've done it. And so, why now? Why do they fail now? And Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer. What does that mean? That means that the disciples had taken for granted the power that they had been given or, more problematically, had believed, come to believe that it was inherent within themselves. So they no longer depended prayerfully on God for it, and their failure showed their lack of prayer. 
So we've had all of this. Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection one time. What's going to happen? He's going to do it again. Verses 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Now, I'm going to pause right there. We said, I think it was the end of chapter 7, that Jesus would never return to a public ministry in Galilee. And he's still not. Look at the second half. And he did not want anyone to know. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So this is round two. This is strike two. They're still afraid to ask him. And this begins a section, uh, the section of mere discipleship that I mentioned earlier. It seems to be this weird sort of sundry patchwork of quotations and unrelated sayings that have no unifying theme. Um, however, closer inspection is tied directly to this. There is an underlying theme of humility and there is an underlying theme of suffering that is demonstrated by Jesus in word and in deed as he is on the way with the disciples to Jerusalem. He establishes this theme by this second reminder found here. He follows this with the lessons intended to inculcate an attitude of humility in the Twelve. So verses 33 to 37, we have warnings against pride and an exhortation to receive the small and powerless. To receive them, excuse me. Verses 38 to 41, we have appeals for clemency and mercy for outsiders. Verse 42, warnings against causing little ones to stumble. And then in verses 43 to 50, the necessity of suffering and fulfillment of God's kingdom. So this is an extended commentary on Jesus' statements about his own suffering and death related to the call of his disciples and of those who will follow him to engage in self-denial and cross-bearing, which was then ratified by this divine ultimatum by the very voice of God, this is my son, listen to him. This divine ultimatum at the transfiguration for the disciples to listen or to hear him. So in verse 30, Jesus returns to Galilee from the territory of Herod Philip. Now, this is not for the purpose, again, of pursuing another Galilean ministry. Uh, His public ministry is done there, but he's on the way now to Jerusalem to complete his redemptive mission. And in fact, we're going to see that the second half of Mark's gospel moves very quickly uh, toward Jerusalem. In fact, chapter 11 is the triumphal entry. So uh, we're some 60 or 70 verses away. But he's focusing now on his teaching ministry to the Twelve, and he seeks seclusion to do this. So they needed to be away from the distractions of the crowds to concentrate on what Jesus was saying to them. They also need to be away from that notion of public messiahship. So Jesus continues to teach them about his passion and the way that he understands it because of who he is. And they obviously didn't understand the first time that he predicted it, so they, you know, try again. Now, we have a verb here. And that phrase is going to be delivered. Now, the verb is paradidatai. And it is a futuristic present. Now, I'm not getting into weird sci-fi stuff. What I mean is 
Although the betrayal is still in the future, it is as good as happening right now. Now, what does this say? I could go on a long theological tirade about this, but what I will spare you from, I will try to summarize briefly. God does not sit at a particular point in time. God himself sits outside outside of time such that the present is present, the past is present, the future is present, and simultaneously all the others. So the future is the past for God and, and, and so forth and so on. Uh, that said, Jesus speaking of his passion, of this death, of this resurrection, this is a divinely orchestrated moment from the beginning of creation, even from before creation. This is the divine decree. This is the thing that has predicated, that the foundation of the world is predicated upon, the passion of Christ right here in this particular historical moment. Um, Pope Benedict XVI I should guess I should say Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth now, uh, the the guy who retired so that Pope Francis could assume the papacy. Uh, in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, claims over and over again, and rightfully so, there is a reason why Christ appeared at the time and at the place that he did. That it was not in 21st century America or Europe or wherever, but that it was in fact first century Palestine where he appears. And yet, its implications are present, they are past, and they are future. Redemptive history has no boundaries. So by translating Paradidati as betrayed, as many uh, translations do, we sort of make a claim for Jesus to be the implied subject of the action because who's going to do the betrayal? But the word literally means to be delivered up or to be handed over. Now, as early as origin in uh, the what, second century, this was interpreted to mean delivered up by God. So if this refers to Judas, then it's, it's almost superfluous in a lot of ways. And it really seems better to understand it as Origen did. Why? Because of, of the implication of, of this. Again, the delivering up of Jesus was part of God's plan for the world's redemption. Now go back and look at Romans chapter 4 or chapter 8. Uh, there's a play on words here, on the word son of man. So men is no doubt deliberate. In a fallen world, men had become so hostile to God that when, as the culmination of his plans for their salvation, he sent to them the man, their savior and ultimate model, they regarded and treated him as their worst enemy. Men and the Son of Man stood on opposite sides in God's eschatological battle against the powers of evil. Now in verse 32, we see the disciples still don't understand, again, uh, and Mark doesn't soften this. He doesn't give them a pass. He gave Peter a pass, but he's not going to give all of them a pass. Uh, maybe some light is getting through to them by now. Maybe. But they're still scared to ask. So it was their fear of asking Jesus about what he had said due to their fear of facing a full disclosure of the suffering that lay ahead? Or was it because when they had asked about the coming Elijah, they hadn't understood that answer? I mean, many is the time that I have been in a class in a whatever context 
and I didn't understand the answer to the first question that I asked, so I just wouldn't ask anything else. We've all been there. We've all done that. Um, so perhaps that's their problem, or they don't want to be like Peter, and they don't want to be rebuked. So whatever the reason, they're afraid to ask Jesus about it, and instead, they choose to occupy themselves by arguing about who is the greatest among them. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So, this series of incidents and sayings in the last part of chapter 9 are not accidental in their placement. They're not just mere survivals of the crude context of an earlier source, and they're not due to a biographical move. So, even though Mark is reporting Peter, this isn't Mark making a biographical claim about Jesus or Peter's recollection, nor is Peter reporting them in this way. Rather, they are deliberately brought in by Mark as a part of Jesus' instruction regarding the inseparable connection both for the leader and for the followers of sufferings with the career and the cause of the Messiah. In this situation, the dispute as to who is the greatest betrays the failure to understand. Again, for them to reject any friends, however uninstructed and slight in their attachment, is an arrogance that reveals their inadequate comprehension. But, as this commentator goes on, what is requisite is sacrifice and self-denial and persistence in it. This is what we're going to see as we move along. And that repression of jealousy and ill-feeling which alone befits men who are entering on a march toward a cross. So he returns to Capernaum, verse 33, where his great Galilean ministry had begun and where his headquarters in Galilee had been located. But he doesn't stay there long this time. His public ministry in the region has ended, and he's instructing his disciples in the house, what does this mean, privately. Now, this is probably the same house from earlier. This is probably the one belonging to Peter and Andrew. And we have a long series of instruction from verses 33 to 50, so this is how we will wrap up with the disciples this evening. Uh, the disciples must have been embarrassed and ashamed of their arguing about who was the greatest because they wouldn't answer Jesus' question. So instead of pondering the thing that he had given them to ponder, which was about his passion, uh, they were occupied with senseless argument about greatness. Uh, now, questions of this sort were common among Jews of the day, so the disciples' dispute shows, again, what, how influenced by their culture they are. We have a tendency to look at the disciples and put them on 12 pedestals right below Jesus, and we can do that insofar as that they were very definitely handpicked by Christ, but we cannot do that in terms of their humanity. They were people, they were susceptible to popular notions, and, buddy, they actually showed it multiple times. But what does Jesus do? Verse 35, he assumes the posture of a Jewish rabbi and he sits down. And he calls the twelve to him. 
And then he says that true greatness comes from service to others. A complete reversal of worldly values, even in their time. And this principle is repeated over and over and over and over again in the tradition, indicating its importance. We're going to see this again in Mark chapter 10, uh, Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 to 11, or Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. It's all over the Gospels. So the very fact that the disciples were concerned about who was the greatest underscores, again, their failures to understand Jesus' statement about his suffering and death. Because the kind of service that Jesus is talking about involves a sacrifice, and for him that is a very personal sacrifice. So then to illustrate this principle, he, he, he takes a child and stands him beside him. And then he takes him into his arms. Oh, we have to get that from chapter 10, verse 16. And then begins to speak. Now, what we have here is one of the most probably interesting things to me in all of Mark's gospel because we have a picture parable. The words child and servant represent one word in Aramaic. So Mark is recording in Greek. But of course, Jesus would be speaking to them most likely in Aramaic. So they are to become like children in their discipleship. And Jesus assures them that when they do this, they become his true representatives. Those who welcome them welcome Christ, and in welcoming Christ, they welcome God himself. But involved, both in childlike discipleship, is also servanthood, because you are also serving, in some ways, your fellow children. Now, we might simplify this and simply say that true greatness entails caring about people. Insignificant, air quote, insignificant people like children because Jesus is concerned about them. So when you care about such people, you're being conformed to that image of Christ. You are actually receiving Jesus and God himself. And we see in Jesus' ministry where he over and over and over again affirms the essential preciousness of those typically outcast by society or those considered insignificant. So in this case, it's the child. We've seen him do it with the leper. We've seen him do it with the Gentile demoniac. This is part of Jesus' M.O. Then John interrupts him. And he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That temptations to sin, <clears throat> temptations to sin, excuse me, should be uh, header over verse 42. 
So John's use of we, verse 38, indicates that he is speaking for all of the disciples. And this is the only time that Mark mentions John alone. This exorcist that John's talking about has been driving out demons with Jesus' name, with Jesus' authority. And it irks the disciples because though he was not one of them, he was being successful at it. Not only that, the last time they tried to do it, they failed. So this strange exorcist must have been a believer. But he was not one of the exclusive company of the Twelve. And apparently, this was a sore point. So they were going to stop him. But in verses 39 to 40, Jesus' reply shows that he does not have a restrictive view of who, who could legitimately participate in his mission, especially not as restrictive as his disciples did. The casting out of demons is not done by virtue of who you are. It is done by virtue of God's power. And contrary to the disciples' belief, that power was not limited to the 12 of them plus Jesus, so those 13. Jesus basically tells them this. He tells them to leave the guy alone. He says that he's not likely soon to speak badly of Jesus if he does a miracle in his name. This is sort of interesting. Go back to Numbers chapter 11, verses 26 to 29. Joshua there tries to get Moses to stop Eldad and Medad from prophesying in the camp of the Israelites for basically the same reason. So... Casting out demons definitely demonstrates that the man is not against Jesus, and whoever is not against us is for us. Now here we come back to this, this messianic secrecy. Uh, Jesus does not want to force men quickly into a decision about himself on the basis of his status. He wants to give them time to decide during which this principle of verse 40 applies. But when the critical moment for decision arrives, then we have to take the principle that is actually laid down in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, which is, he who is not with me is against me. So the reversal of that statement. Now verse 41 in many ways, seems to go best with verse 37 from our previous section before John's interruption. But it could also serve as a concrete example of the principle stated in verse 40. So we get this solemn affirmation once again. Truly, I say to you, or truly, I tell you, or verily, verily, if you're reading the King James. The giving of a cup of water, of course, is a very small act of hospitality, but if it is given to one who belongs to Christ, the act is going to be rewarded. So we have again the Jewish idea that the representative of a man is as the man himself applies. To give a cup of water to somebody is the same as giving the cup of water to Christ. And of course the reward is God's approval. Now, verse 42, though it should be under that heading, again, temptations to sin, uh, because that's what our modern translations have done to it, it really probably is better taken with 
this that we've just finished than what follows. On this understanding, the warning it contains points back to the disciples' attempt to prevent the unknown exorcist from doing his work in Jesus' name, uh, or to prevent anyone from giving a cup of water in his name. Little ones does not refer to children here, but rather to followers of Christ. And this word to sin we've, ske- we've seen before, uh, scandalous Zane, it means to prevent them from acting in Jesus' name, so... Whoever causes a follower, really, whoever prevents a follower of Jesus from uh, acting in Jesus' name, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And preventing someone from doing that, from acting in Jesus' name, is so grave a sin that it would be better to be drowned than to do it. Now, the millstone that he's referred to in this time is not, you know, some little dinky round rock but we're talking about one of these large millstones that's turned by donkey power uh it's it's a big one but then we go on verses 43 to 50 and if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So the sayings in this little unit are grouped into a series of catchwords. Causes of sin, fire, and salt. Now, these catchwords function as a mnemonic device, as a memory device. Um, so this suggests that this unit of material may have come to mark actually as a unit of the oral tradition, which is loosely ordered around this theme of discipleship. The printing of this pericope in verse rather than prose would throw its parallelism and linking words into greater relief. So we see them looking somewhat like the Proverbs here. Now, several of the sayings appear in different contexts in the other Gospels, but they don't all appear together again like they do here. Um, The sayings about cutting off one's hand and gouging out one's eye appear not only in the parallel in Matthew 18, Uh, but also in variant forms in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. They appear there after Jesus is teaching on adultery. Um, The saying on salt also appears in the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapter 5, as an illustration of the distinctiveness of discipleship. But Luke appends it to a section in Luke chapter 14 on the cost of discipleship. So the various forms and locations of this saying then suggest that Jesus uttered them on different occasions and or that they were transmitted without their accompanying context by the early church and were used according to the editorial designs of each evangelist. Now that's not to say, again, I I feel like every time I bring out one of these controversies I need to qualify this. This is not to call into question the, the, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. What it brings to light for us is that God used real people to write this stuff. Their personalities are there. Their biases are there. Each of them is different because they come with different experiences, with different contexts, 
and that is why we have such variation in our Gospels, much like if I were to write a news story, or we can use that. CNN reports one way, Fox reports another way. Um, our president likes to call it fake news. Maybe it is, but it could also be a perspective. Now, the large number of Greek textual variants among the sayings suggests that they circulated without a narrative context because a copyist would be more inclined to alter the saying to fit a context rather than alter a context to fit a saying. The, the meanings of verses 42 to 48 are clear enough in their present form, but the brevity, terseness, and lack of context of the sayings of verses 49 to 50 make a conclusive interpretation more difficult to render. So, rather than go through these each, I just make some general comments about verses 43 to 48. The main point is that it is so important to enter into life, eternal life, eschatological life, however you want to phrase that, that radical means must be taken to remove what can prevent it or what must be taken to remove sin. So sin here is connected with the physical self, the hand, the foot, and the eye. Uh, Jesus is not demanding the excision of our bodily members, okay? He's not actually saying to go cut off your hand or to gouge out your eye or to cut off your foot. What he is demanding is the cessation of the sinful activities of these members. So... If you want to put it this way, radical spiritual surgery is demanded. What you have at stake is eternal life. Now, the word translated hell is Gehenna. And I think if you use the King James Version, you might see that used on occasion. This is a Greek form of the Hebrew words, which mean the Valley of Hinnom. Now, this is the valley on the south side of the city of Jerusalem, which was used in Old Testament times for human sacrifices to the pagan god Molech, or Moloch. And you can see that in Jeremiah chapter 7, chapter 19, or chapter 32. Now, King Josiah puts a stop to this dreadful practice, 2 Kings chapter 23, and the Valley of Hinnom came to be used as a place where human excrement and rubbish, including animal carcasses, were disposed of and burned. The fire of Gehenna never went out, and the worms never died. So it came to be used symbolically of the place of divine punishment. Now, if we look in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, we might uh, see the beginning of this use, but it becomes much clearer during the intertestamental period, particularly in the book of Enoch. Um, in chapter 27, verse 2 of the book of Enoch, it reads, This accursed valley is for those who are accursed forever. Here will all those be gathered who utter unseemly words against God, and here is the place of their punishment. And again, a like abyss was opened in the midst of the earth, full of fire, and they were all judged and found guilty and cast into that fiery abyss, and they burned. Uh, as I have said before, the intertestamental literature that we have access to may not be good for informing our doctrine on a spiritual level. At the same time, it provides that context that makes the case for why that doctrine developed the way that it did. And in this particular case, Jesus is using the understanding that actually comes about as a result of the intertestamental period. Now, if you've looked at this closely, you'll see that we go 43, 45, 47, and then 48, 49, 50. 
Verses 44 and 46 are thrown out in the ESV, and they're also omitted in the NIV. The reason for this is they're lacking in uh, early manuscripts. The most important early manuscripts don't actually have them, but they're later added to round out the parallelism in verses 47 to 48, and so they replicate the wording of verse 48. Um you see there with the arrow pointing where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then it would be there again, verse 46. You have that verse appearing three times, essentially. Now, verse 49, this is probably one of the most difficult verses in Mark. For everyone will be salted with fire. There are like uh, over a dozen different interpretations found in commentaries. And two of them are of particular note, and they both take their clue from an insertion by a copyist of the words, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. This is a reference to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So one interpretation sees in the sacrificial salt a symbol of the covenant relationship the children of Israel had with God. For every disciple of Jesus, the salt of the covenant is divine fire, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, which purifies, preserves, and consummates the sacrifice. The alternative to the fire that consumes this fire, of course, would be what the Holy Spirit. Now another interpretation sees in the fire the trials and persecutions of the disciples of Jesus. The previous verses relate to the dedication of the various members of the body, hand, foot, and eye to God. These must be sacrificed if need be to enter the kingdom of God. So here in verse 49, the total self is in mind. So while we're saying you must prevent these things from allowing you to commit sin, we're also saying now that the total self must be in total commitment. And as salt always accompanied the temple sacrifices, so fire, persecution, trials, and suffering will accompany the true disciples' sacrifice. And there's probably no clearer writing on this than the majority of First Peter. Now this saying is only preserved in Mark. Thanks, Mark. And it must have had special meaning for the persecuted Roman church because it helps them perhaps to understand that the purifying fires of their persecution were not to be thought of as foreign to their vocation as Christians because everyone will be assaulted by fire. So at some point, we're all going to face persecution because of what it is that we believe. Uh, so now we can move to verse 50. In this verse, salt must be understood in a domestic setting and not in a religious or a ritual one as in verse 49. Salt plays an important role in the ancient world and the rabbis actually considered it necessary to survive. Uh, quotation from one of their writings, the world cannot survive without salt. Of course, it's used as a preservative from, to keep food from spoiling, but it could also lose its saltiness. Now, Jesus is warning his disciples not to lose that characteristic in them that brings to life, brings life to the world, rather, and prevents its decay. But what is that characteristic that, if lost, will make the disciples of Jesus worthless? It's the spirit of devotion and of self-sacrifice to Christ and his gospel, the thing that as the foundation of his mission is also the thing that is foundational to their discipleship. 
It will only be possible for disciples to be at peace with one another where that kind of devotion instead of self-interest prevails. So bringing all of that back, who is the greatest among us? It doesn't really matter. You're doing it all wrong. You've got the wrong emphasis. Uh, That is what we're getting at there. Okay, so that brings us to the end of chapter 9 and to the end of uh, tonight's study. Thank you so much and have a great week. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Mathedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.